All right, it is really good to see everybody uh, tonight. Like I mentioned, go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to dive right in and be there in just a moment. We have two more weeks discussing biblical faith. And so far, since we transitioned from the reliability of the Scriptures and the self-authenticating nature of Scripture, we have shown that That faith is the work of the Spirit of God by the grace of God and that it does not come from the law or from works. It comes from hearing. Hearing from the Word of God is a response to the Word of God, the proclamation of the Gospel. It is a spiritual gift of beholding the glory of the Lord and it causes us to be transformed now into the same image of Christ. And Christ is the eternal glory that we behold in faith. This new life And this faith is the root of our ministry we've discussed. We've been given a life of ministry we talked about by God's mercy. You see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We don't deserve it. We can't accomplish it, this ministry. Rather, we've been given this ministry by God's grace and we have confidence that He will accomplish it in us and through us by His grace. Therefore, we talked about how we must know the truth And proclaim the truth all the while resting in the sovereignty of God that he will indeed accomplish his purpose. And last week, we discussed the need to persevere in our faith. We talked about how we persevere is based on the fact that we need to have an eternal focus. Not the temporary focus which allows us to fall into discouragement and greed and personal sin. But rather that we would have a biblical, joyful understanding that our best life comes later. This would give us a biblical, joyful understanding of suffering. And when we do this, we are showing that our aim is ultimately to please God and He is our greatest treasure. So here we are tonight in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 11 through 21. And tonight we're going to be discussing faith in action. We've talked about already, and we'll discuss again tonight, that all of us have a ministry. We've all been given a ministry. This ministry is the ministry of reconciliation, as we will see again tonight. So the question is, what is our ministry specifically? Why should we pursue our ministry? Why should we enjoy it? Can we enjoy it? How does our life change because of this call to ministry? And I want to show three things tonight about our ministry and how we put our faith into action. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. Let's pick up in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from whom? God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, because of this, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Three things tonight for how we put our faith 
into action. I'll give you all three, and then we'll begin with the first. We're going to talk about the message of our ministry. We're going to talk about the motive for our ministry. And we're going to talk about the life of ministry. So we'll begin with the message of ministry. Christians know a lot about religion. Many Christians know a lot about the Bible. Many Christians know a lot about who Jesus is. Many Christians know a lot about the church, how the church functions, all these types of things. But this doesn't necessarily mean that Christians know the gospel or professing believers. People who fill the majority of churches today. One of the most important things in the life of the believer is that he truly knows, truly understands, and therefore rests in the truth of the gospel. If you were asked tonight, JJ, Jordan, Courtney, Melissa, Vic, John, if I were to say, all right, tonight what we're going to do is we're going to have a little quiz. And I'm going to call all of you to come up. You have 10 minutes. And what I want you to do is I want you to explain the gospel to everyone. And you need to fill all 10 minutes. How would you do? If we went through the entire group in here, that was tonight, starting with AJ. Ten minutes, go. You better speak until the beeper's done. Some of you might need more than ten minutes. Some of you might not want more than ten seconds. The reality is is that not many people really know and are comfortable explaining the gospel. One of the biggest reasons that people don't know what the gospel is, is because they are engaged and their affections and other things. However, the church has made it possible to be engaged in the things of God, yet still not knowing what the gospel is. And one of the biggest reasons that people don't share Christ or preach the gospel or fulfill their ministry or be intentional in their life with their ministry is indeed fear. It's one of the number one reasons you hear for why people don't preach the gospel more often or share Christ or evangelize or be a little more founded on the Bible and what they do and why they do it. But what does that mean? What, what are they afraid of is really the question. What is the fear? Because I believe it's not actually a fear of being rejected. I think that the fear of rejection really shows a deeper fear, which is really the fear of most people. And that is the fear of not knowing what to say. The fear of not knowing where to start. The fear of not wanting to get stumped by somebody. What if I forget something? And so there's this pressure because it's the gospel. You don't want to mess it up. You don't want to say anything wrong. And therefore, there's this big fear, and we don't know what to say, and we don't share it. However, I believe that Paul shows us, if we want to be serious about the ministry that God has given us, we have to know what the gospel is. We have to understand how the gospel applies to every part of life. And then we need to rest in the gospel. The biggest need in the church today is the gospel. Before people need to know about stewardship, or before people need to know about suffering, or relationships, or anything else for that matter, they need to know the gospel. And this is why. It is only through the gospel that any of those things will make sense and actually be full of joy and have biblical meaning and godly success. Today in churches, we put far too much attention into studies and series that are about life. And we assume that the gospel application to these things is already known in people. And so what we do is we bypass the elementary truths of the gospel to make a point about a relationship or make a point about money or make a point about time or delights because we're assuming that people know the foundation of the basics of the gospel when the reality is most professing believers, Christians, people in church today do not. Therefore, when they try to put into practice the application of a lot of these sanctification type things, they don't know what they're basing it off of. They don't know how to look in the face of discouragement and persevere. They don't know how to look in the face of suffering and persevere. They don't know how to look into the face of broken relationships and difficulties in their finances and persevere because they are unaware of the basic elementary truths of the gospel. Most Christians today cannot give you a description beyond a children's Sunday school answer or John 3.16. Now, 
I don't mean this to be a discouragement. I actually mean it to be something that should cause us to be really intentional. Because if indeed we are a new creation, and if indeed we've been free from being slaves to sin, and we now are free in Christ according to the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. If indeed we can draw near to God and therefore resist the devil, and he will flee from us, we ought to know how that happens. And what we proclaim, and what we preach to ourselves, and how we pray, and how we fight against sin, and fight against the enemy. This is crucial. And it is what leads us to passive freedom. What does Paul already reveal to us in this letter? What we've been discussing the last four weeks about what the gospel is. If you remember in chapter 3, he says it's not a result of works according to the law. Rather, the law shows us our need for a savior. We have been given life because of the spirit. We see here in chapter 5, Christ died for us so that we may now truly live in him. Verse 21 of tonight's passage shows us the great exchange that he became sin for us so that we in him might become his righteousness. So Paul alludes in the context of this ministry, he alludes to the overarching foundation and constant theme of the gospel. He always is referring back to it. All the hope and application that he has is because of the gospel. So tonight, I want us to Read over what the gospel is. It's a brief explanation that I've printed off for you. There are grammatical errors and false punctuation marks and all of that jazz and sometimes rhetorical questions. And it's, it's like you're, what you're doing is you're about to read David's brain as he says these things. So try not to focus on the things that are incorrect as far as grammatical stuff and focus on the truth and the message. All right, look at me really quick before you get caught away in that paper. The gospel is something that you need to preach to yourself every day. The gospel will be what strengthens you. The gospel will be what gives you joy. The gospel will be what reminds you in the midst of sin that your ministry and your salvation, what God has called you to, isn't because you are good enough, but is because of God's mercy and His grace. Therefore, will cause you to move forward in obedience. The gospel will cause you to persevere in your faith. You need the gospel more than anything else. So what I want us to do is I'm going to ask for my reading help to come up. I've assigned some reading help. So my reading help, come on up. You can get in order of what you're reading. We're going to read together. And so you don't fall asleep to the sound of my mundane voice, which you'll be hearing the rest of the evening. I've enlisted some others to help in the reading. All right, everybody look at me. We're going to read together and along, but here's what I want you to do. I want you, and I'm going to pray for this in a second, to lock in. I want you to be humbled and full of gratitude because of the truths that we're about to read that come from Scripture. I want you to be overwhelmed once again as if you have just been saved. I want you to remember the moment that this first became real to you and you were overwhelmed the sense that you have been freed in Christ. God has saved you. He's forgiven you of your sin. You've been saved from eternity in hell under God's wrath and been given the fullness of His joy and His presence forevermore. I want us to really be moved and motivated and encouraged by these truths. And God, I ask right now, in today's day and age when we're so easily distracted, We read articles online or books, and what we do is we skim. We read Facebook posts, and we skim. Get to the point. And if we know something, we've read something, we've heard something, we skip over it. I'm praying that tonight, Lord, you, by your grace and the power of your Spirit, would be the the hands and the feet in our brains and our minds as we're reading this. That you would cause us to slow down. That you'd stir in our soul an affection for you because of who you are and what you've done. Remind us of these gospel truths. And the reality is, is that many people in here might not know the full extent of the gospel. So some of this stuff might be, whoa! I never realized that. And I pray that you would breathe new life into them tonight. That you would cause us tonight to see even greater the glory of Christ that would be transformed in that image. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hold it. You're good there. Go. Before Genesis 1... Before the beginning of earth and creation, God existed eternally. One in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The all-powerful, all-knowing God had a plan to display the riches and fullness of his glory. He purposed the plan according to the counsel of his will, 
to the praise of his glory. This plan was to make known the riches of his glory through vessels of mercy. Before God ever said, let there be light, he foreknew, predestined, conformed, called, justified, and glorified a people for himself. <coughs> so God, in his wisdom, created everything. John 1.3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The sovereign, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing God created. As, as creator, everything was given a purpose. Everything was part of his plan. Proverbs 16.4. Mm-hmm. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is none like me. Declare, wait a second, sorry. Mm-hmm. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring from the end, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Mm-hmm. Lamentations 2, 17. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word which he commanded long ago. But God isn't only creator. If God created all things, then he is also ruler over all things. He is Lord of all. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. As R.C. Sproul says, there is no maverick molecule in the universe. Since God is ruler, it means that he alone determines what is right and what is wrong. This is a difficult pill for people to swallow in every generation and every culture. This is not new to postmodernism. This has been a battle since the garden. This is where man fell. Man's desires went against God's rule. Man sinned. Adam and Eve disobeyed and gave into what God said they were forbidden from. This changed everything. It did not change God's plan. It was no shock to God, but it changed everything for man. Man was created in the image of God and was in perfect relationship with God. They walked, they talked, but once sin entered the world, separation from God was a result. But this sin problem didn't just affect Adam and Eve. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2.1 And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. James 2 lets us know the seriousness of sin and breaking God's law. Verse 10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. In other words, one single sin makes you guilty before God. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Romans 1.18 and 2.5 shows us this sin, death, guiltiness makes us deserving of God's wrath, of his eternal punishment and separation in hell. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Ephesians 2 says we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But don't fret. This too is part of God's plan. How? How does wrath show a plan of mercy how are we not all doomed Romans 9 22 to 24 what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he has called not from the Jews only but also from the Gentiles Romans 11:32 says, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. 
You see, apart from knowing God's wrath, his justice, his holiness, and our sin, we would not know his mercy. Okay, so obviously now we have come to the hope, right? Salvation. This is the big question. When I look at an eternal God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, creator, ruler, holy, and now also judge, I realize I have a problem in my sin. So what must I do to be saved? I have to repay God, right? I have to give a sacrifice of some sort. I have to stop doing bad things and do good things. I have to obey his law perfectly, right? In order for me to be saved, don't I have to be brought back in right standing with God? The answer is yes, you do. You have to be perfect before a holy God. You have to be blameless. You have to be righteous. Matthew 25, 46 says, The righteous, in, or the righteous inherit eternal life. 1 Peter 1, 16 says, Be holy as I am holy. But here we have another problem. I can never repay God. Once I've sinned, I'm guilty of the whole law. I can't cleanse myself. I can never do good enough. And even worse, Romans 8, 7 through 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Galatians 2, 16 says, That by works of the law, no one will be justified. And not only that, but the same devil who tempted and blinded Adam and Eve in the garden is doing the same to people under the wrath of God today. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4 And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I have a sin problem, a blindness problem, and a spiritually dead problem. So how can I have any hope? How can I be righteous, perfect? The answer is Jesus. This was the plan. Think back to eternity past. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And as we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In order to show the immeasurable riches of his glory and grace, Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slain in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8, this is the Lamb of God, the eternal, God-satisfying sacrifice who takes away the sin of the world. Think back to Romans 5 and Adam. Through one man, sin came into the world, and all men were spiritually dead because of sin. Romans 5.15 says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have, much more have the grace of God, and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 18-20 through 20 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Verse 8 says, God shows his love for us, and that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2, 6-8. He lived the life we should have, died the death we deserved, rose from the dead by the power of the Spirit of God, conquering death and the grave, and ascended to the Father's right hand. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Ephesians 2 gives us the answer to the sin problem. 
But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Romans 6.23, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus exclaimed on the cross before his final breath in John 19.30 to test a lie. It is finished. Jesus had completed the work God has sent him to do. Jesus, the sinless man, was crucified for our sins. He bore our sin and the full wrath of God on the cross. He drank the cup of wrath completely to the very last drop. But there is still one enemy left to beat, and that is death, hell. 1 Corinthians 15:14 says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 17 says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But verse 20 through 22 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We too have been raised with Christ. Romans 8, 10 through 11. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Titus 3, 3 3-8 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And that is it. We are now looking toward the day when we will be restored back to right fellowship with God. Even better than it was before the fall, better than Eden. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Revelation 21 says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord Those in Christ will spend an eternity feasting on the eternal joy of our Savior and God, and those apart from Christ will spend an eternity separated from God and under his wrath. So what must you do to be saved? You can do nothing. God does everything. When the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the truth of the gospel, and we see our sin in the presence of a holy God, Yet we delight in the beauty of a Savior. We are led by the Spirit of grace to confess our sin. To repent from our sin. To confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And to believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. 
He became our sin so that we would become His righteousness. Those who are in Christ will be transformed by the Spirit of God to be conformed to the image of Christ. Saving faith produces holiness in a believer. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now that we are a new creation, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, now that we are adopted into the beloved, as Ephesians 1.3-7 says, we are no longer seen by God as sinners under His wrath. When God sees us now, He sees us through the work of Christ, the blood of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ. As Paul said, it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. In Psalm 103, verse 10 through 12, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. We have no ministry apart from this message. We have no hope apart from this message. We have no joy apart from this message. I was thinking today, you just wake up in discouragement. Wake up with the weight of old sin, present sin, shame, guilt. And I immediately turned to Psalm 51 and I turned to the gospel. I preached the gospel myself and I was reminded of a hymn that I sang it together for the gospel a a couple years ago in, in Louisville, Kentucky called He Will Hold Me Fast. And I went in my office and I sang it a cappella and I cried before the Lord thanking Him that my transgressions have been removed from me as far as the east is from the west that I have been declared righteous before God, and that I have a hope that far outlasts this world. We need to remind ourselves of this message each day. It's the only thing that has power in our relationships. It's the only thing that has power in our stewardship. It's the only thing that gives us power in any ability or talent. It's the only thing that gives us power and joy in anything in this life. We must cling to this message. So, In order to put faith into action, we must know the gospel. We must know the message of ministry. Before we go to point two, I want to encourage you. This is yours to take home. After reading it a few times, I'll probably go in and just finally make it a document that's supposed to be read by other people and fix all the errors and uh, add some more thorough thought to some places. But I hope that you can go back and maybe you can keep that and put it somewhere. And you can remind yourself of the gospel. Get to the point where you know it well. Those aren't my words, right? That's the gospel, it's the message, the bulk of that is taken from scripture. And so I I would encourage you guys to preach the gospel to yourselves daily, to know that. And now when you're honoring Christ the Lord uh, in your hearts as holy, then you'll be prepared to give a reason and a defense of the hope that is within you. And to be able to correct your opponents with gentleness and expose the deeds of darkness and speak the truth in love. The message of ministry. Number two. The motive for ministry. If you look back at our text in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. Paul says, We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. Now, if you remember 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says that the believers were his letter of recommendation. That he did not need the puffed up letters and outward appearances and nuances of the Judaizers or those who would be arrogant in their ministry. He did not need all these things to have a credible ministry. He did not boast in those things. Yet here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, Paul does give us 
a way, a right way to boast in our ministry. He shows us how specifically if you read on through verse 15. So continuing in verse 12, he says, So that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance. That's the wrong way to boast. And not about what is in the heart. And that is the right way to boast. Verse 13, Paul says, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in a right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all having died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The motive of our ministry is key, and this is what Paul was boasting in. Paul was focused on his heart being right with God and not people. He was focused on his heart and his ministry being right with God, not people. He knew the latter, being right with people, would be taken care of if the former, being right with God, was where it needed to be. The Judaizers and many others were calling out his ministry, not because of insincerity, but they actually called him crazy. They thought he was crazy. They thought that what Paul was saying was crazy. Therefore, they didn't question us of the motive, but they questioned his sanity. But Paul pleads with the believers in Corinth to see his heart and also for them to defend his ministry because they know his heart and to be able to defend his ministry to the opposition and to follow in his footsteps that if they were boast, they would boast in the same thing. And what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In fact, the first letter that Paul ever wrote was to the church in Galatia. In the first chapter, he says... Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. A couple things here. He says, if I were still trying to please man. In other words, all of us by natural default in our sin try to please man. Others and ourselves. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we're a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. So he's saying, the old trying to please man is gone. If it were still here, I would not be a servant of Christ. I would be a servant of man, is what he's saying. Paul was telling his fellow saints not to seek the praise of man. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 12, he says this. This is our boast, the testimony of our conscience. This is how. We have behaved in this world with simplicity. In other words, not seeking worldly gain. And we've behaved in this world with sincerity. Truly knowing and resting in the gospel. You see, Christian ministry doesn't end with understanding the right message. Because the right message must be delivered with the right motive. Now, Paul did say, I'm just happy that the gospel is being preached, right? Right? So if those are, if the people are preaching the gospel from impure hearts, praise God the gospel is being preached. So amen to that. But Paul is saying to his believers, if you're a believer, if you're truly in Christ, you're a new creation, it's not just important for you to pay attention to what you're preaching, but the motive behind what you're preaching. The motive to our ministry is crucial in declaring the message of our ministry. Calvin talks about this specific passage, and he says this of Paul. He said, Paul was indeed concerned about his reputation. And he was concerned about teaching the church in Corinth to be concerned about their reputation. But only insofar as it is for the advantage of the church to the glory of God and not to self. In other words, these people thought Paul was crazy. He wasn't interested in defending his craziness. They were calling out the gospel that he was preaching. He was interested in defending that. We don't have to defend ourselves. We need to defend the message of the gospel. In fact, Paul says, it's okay for people to think I'm crazy, as long as for the Lord's sake. But he tells his brothers and sisters that I am not crazy. I'm in my right mind. What they believe in his message to be crazy is actually what he is telling his fellow saints is the right mind to have. Now, this can lead us to the thought of perception. 
Perception. How do people perceive you? How do people perceive your ministry? How do people perceive your church? Every church has a reputation of the way they are perceived in a community. Every person in this room, there is a perception about you of people in this community. There are probably many different perceptions about you. There's many different perceptions about me. And perceptions can be a dangerous thing. The very first part of the right motive for ministry must be to please God, we said. We talked about this last week. In the beginning of chapter 5, it says, Whether I'm away uh, from the body or, or within the body or away from the body, it is my aim to please God, we talked about. So Paul shows us last week, my aim is to please God, yet here he is saying there's reason to boast in the way I'm handling my ministry. So he shows us a balance that is helpful. In other words, don't get steamrolled. When you can rightly defend defend your ministry or your reputation for the glory of God. Don't lay back and let people just talk horribly of you. It's, It's okay to defend for the glory of God for the sake of the church and the gospel. But we also defend our ministry not for the sake of our reputation, but fully for Christ and His church. In other words, if you want to defend yourself specifically so that you can be viewed a specific way apart from God, so that you can be elevated, so that you can be thought well of, so that you can have some kind of influence and power. Now we see a selfishness and a pride that is quickly quickly creeping into our ministry where we want to be heard, we want to wow people, we want to influence people, we want to have power, we want to have a following. And this is where if we don't remember the message of our ministry... If we don't humble ourselves, we'll fall into the same trap as the Judaizers who desired the praise of men. Paul was never concerned about the praise of men. In fact, he was the one who said, who's Paul? Who is Apollos? He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, I preach Christ and Him crucified so that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Perception and reputation can sometimes be crippling. It can be paralyzing. In fact, for those specifically who might be in a full-time ministry as far as being paid, because what I'm going to argue at the end of the day is we're all in full-time ministry, so I say that lightly and loosely. But James, James does say in James chapter 3, not many of you should become teachers, right? You know, you'll be, receive a stricter judgment. We see that the call to be elders and deacons have an expectation level. So there is a, uh, you know, Paul himself said, beyond all of these lashings and whippings and sufferings and food, all that kind of stuff, the daily burden for the church. That's a real, real, real thing. But many times, the burden that is associated with ministry is actually a result of impure motives of the minister. Meaning this, what can keep us up at night is living in a constant worry because of the thoughts and perceptions of other people. I myself find that I can be crippled and paralyzed by this. Paul takes this topic very, very seriously. He tells us there's no freedom there. That that kind of mentality in your ministry makes you a slave to people. And here's why. You can never please people. You know, we just read the gospel and we talked about how the seriousness of sin, the question that Rudy, that Rudy got, brought us to in his reading was, how can we have a hope? How can we be found righteous before God? How can we be found perfect? In whom? Jesus. But, and many people are paralyzed by that. How can I be right? I've done too much to be accepted by God. Yet God offers us His free gift of grace and forgives, of our, uh, forgives us of our sins. The real burden is trying to please people. Think about it. I myself, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a pastor at this church. I deal with people all the time here. And I've talked about this before. Everybody has an opinion on the vol- volume of music. Everybody has an opinion on the type of music. Everybody has an opinion on how long the music. Everybody has an opinion on what type of messages. Everybody has an opinion on how cold or hot it should be in here. Everybody has an opinion on how long the services should last. Everybody has an opinion on how the chair should be set up. This is, we haven't even moved past a service yet. Right? There are opinions non-stop. And therefore, if I allow myself to be burdened and seeking the approval of man, and I see myself as a servant of the church, I get no sleep. Because every time I go with what Chase wants the degrees to be in here, I tick off Caroline. And now I'm playing favorites. 
People are what bring us burdens, trying to please and seek the approval of man. This is where there's no freedom. This is what it means to be a slave to people. You can never please people. Yet Christ has declared us righteous before the Father, and the Father's wrath has been satisfied. Therefore, our motive of ministry should not be people who will never please, but to please Christ who has declared us righteous and accepted us in the Beloved. What can man do to me? Why would I still seek the approval of man when I have the approval of God? So our first motive in ministry is to please God. And Paul shows us also that perception and reputation can be wrong. They were calling him crazy. He's looking at his saints saying, I'm in my right mind. People can say and perceive and think things all the time. This is why gossip and slander is so devastating and crucial. Mike's home or uh, life group on Sunday mornings is going to be talking about gossip for a number of weeks coming up. It's one of the biggest things that plagues the church. Gossip, slander. In fact, we see here in this text, it says what? From now on, verse 16, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Meaning this. I just broke this pulpit. Meaning this, forget it. If I, yeah, I'll get it glued for you, Mike. If I gossip and slander about Caroline, who is in Christ and declare righteous for God, who am I to declare her unrighteous when God has accepted her? How foolish for me to regard Caroline according to the flesh when she has been made right before God. This is why there's a false understanding and execution of church discipline and sanctification. Making sin issues a public affair, which is unbiblical. You address people one-on-one with another brother. You try to tackle sin in people's life, not for the sake of embarrassing them or bringing guilt and shame, but so that they can be restored to right fellowship with God and with other believers. Regard no one according to the flesh. Look at them through the gospel lens of how Christ sees you, how Christ sees them if they are in Christ, and then expose the deeds of darkness, speaking the truth in love, so that they may come back and be ambassadors for Christ. Why would I seek the approval of man? That is what keeps me up at night when I have the approval of God. This would show that I seek to please man, not God. Our first ministry motive, to aim to please God, seek the approval of God, and it has been done in Christ. Our second motive in ministry is what Paul says in verse 11. He says, Therefore, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Fear is a motive of ministry. Now, yes, this is a reverent, awe-filled, humbling fear. It's a worshipful fear. But when you translate this word into the Greek, it does mean terror and fright. And why? What does verse 10 tell us? that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, for those of us in Christ, this judgment seat is not the great white throne judgment where people have to answer for the deeds that are written in the book that they have done and are cast into hell because they've rejected God. Rather, we must all either appear based on that book or those who are in the Lamb's book of life will stand before the Bema seat where we will receive our rewards, but also where all motives and wrongdoings will be exposed and made known among all people, specifically our motives. Now, this is not what gets us into heaven or casts us into hell. We are declared righteous because of the work of Christ. Being in the Lamb's book of life means you have eternity with Christ. Yet Paul was motivated by a holy fear that Paul would answer to his Creator for his ministry. This motivation, he tells us, should cause us to persuade others. And the word here does mean that. Convince and plead with people. Gavin, you will stand before God and answer for your ministry and your motives and your sin. Yes, you are accepted in the beloved and declared right before God. But run after Christ that you may receive the prize and then cast your crowns at the feet of Jesus. Everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Today in the church, not only have we lost an understanding of the gospel, because we've lost an understanding of the gospel, we've lost a holy fear for the Lord. We trample the gates of God. 
We come in not checking our hearts, not confessing our sins. We trample the courts. We sing songs of praise from lips that have just cussed and cursed and poured out in anger. We stand here before God with hands raised, with eyes that have gazed at herself in a mirror for over 30 minutes, wanting to look as good as we possibly could so that other people think we look good. There's a total immodesty and impurity that has come into the courts of God because we don't fear Him. And yet we see that there's an important aspect of fear of God because if you remember, Sapphira and um, Ananias walk in and they kept back part from the Lord. And what happens? Dead and dragged out. We live and act and breathe today and move in such arrogant ways. We live with a mentality of invincibility so often and it's easy for the older generation to look at youth and say, what is wrong with you? I'm wise, I'm older. Why are you acting like you can never be touched, like there's no consequences and like you won't be the one to get in a car accident down the road? You live like you're invincible and yet us adults are just as guilty of living and walking the same kind of arrogance before a holy God thinking that we are invincible when we cling to our pride and our selfishness and our sin. Not remembering the seriousness of God's holiness and the reality that our life is but a vapor is a dangerous way to live. Psalm chapter 2 verse 11 tells us to serve the Lord with fear, to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. These are terror words. To worship the Lord with fear and trembling is indeed a, you could crush me in a moment. You are a holy God and I am but man. Who am I that you are mindful of me? Yet it also says to rejoice in this trembling. And we rejoice because we are submitting humbly to a holy God, but knowing that we have confidence to approach the throne because of the work of Christ, and we've been accepted in the Beloved. Psalm 2 says, kiss the son lest he be angry and we perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we ought to persuade others. Preaching the gospel to ourselves reminds us of this power and holiness of God. It reminds us what he has saved us from. Therefore, understanding this and understanding that those apart from Christ are under his wrath, we ought to be serious and motivated to persuade others. And we must preach the gospel to them. But the biggest motive and the final motive that I see that Paul gives us here in this passage is love. Read verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Paul says the love of Christ controls us. And this was truly the heart of Paul's own ministry. Read Paul's writings. Paul was so moved, so humble, so grateful for the radical love of God towards him that he desired to please God in all that he did. Every letter he writes talks about the great love he's received from the Father. Therefore, he acts on that love. And this is how he encourages those in Corinth to minister. Remember the great love with which God has loved you. Go preach the gospel. Live for him, Corinth. Aim to please him, Corinth. In fact, the crux of this is found in verse 15. What does verse 15 say? He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The love God has shown to us in Christ is that he died for us so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him. The love of Christ is the motive for living for Christ. And this is pinnacle. This is the absolute pinnacle of our motive for ministry. This is what is required in our motive of ministry. And here's why. It is possible to be motivated by seeking the approval of God. Motive number one. And to be motivated by having a fear of the Lord. Motive number two. But still be distorted. Because we can simply not want God to punish us. We can simply want the rewards that he promises. And all of this can still be selfish at heart. This is why Paul says, fear of the Lord, pleasing God, but it's the love of Christ that controls us. 
He doesn't say it's the fear of the Lord that controls us. He doesn't say it's seeking the approval of God that controls us because we've already received his approval. Rather, what controls us? The love of Christ. Ultimately, ministry is about Christ, so we must be about Christ. The love of Christ controlling us is the motive for ministry that will lead us to no longer living for ourselves. So when we aim to please God, we do so because we love Him more than ourselves. And when we have a fear of God, it's a worshipful, humble, grateful fear of the Lord that desires others to know and experience the same awe. So our motives for ministry must be that we no longer live for self, therefore aim to please God by seeking His approval, not ours. And because of our fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We must not just know the message. We must proclaim the message with the right motives. And number three, the life of ministry. And this is really where I get to faith in action as we close today. The life of ministry. Say life. This is the most intentional word used tonight. Because ministry is not a duty. This is not the duty of ministry. Ministry is not a simple deed. Ministry is not coming on Tuesday nights and tearing down the chairs and then stacking them back up. Ministry is not serving the homeless on Friday nights. Ministry is not leading a home group or a small group. Ministry is not when you open your mouth and preach the gospel to someone. Ministry is your life. Ministry, Paul says, is no longer living for yourself. This is the ministry that God has called us to. Paul says it. To live is Christ. Verse 17. We are a new creation. The old Dave Aubrey has passed away. The new Dave Aubrey has come. This is from God, Paul says here. He reconciled me. He restored me to right relationship with himself through Christ. Dave Aubrey now has Christ's righteousness. The love of Christ controls Dave Aubrey. Therefore, because of this, no part of my life can be separate from ministry. Because no part of my life can be separate from Christ. If the love of Christ is controlling me. And if I'm living like Christ. And if the old Dave has gone. Paul tells us two things here. We've been called to the ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. In fact, it says, God making his appeal through us. Think about that. This is a means passage. God is the one who does all things, and God works through means. And the means in which we reach people with the gospel today is brothers and sisters in Christ. It is disciples making disciples. It is you as an ambassador and as a minister of reconciliation. This is the purpose of your new life in Christ. This was not your purpose apart from Christ. What you did is you lived to serve people. To seek the approval of people, namely yourself. But now, in your ministry, in your life, in which no part of your life can be separated from this, God is making His appeal through you. Therefore, we must take this ministry of being an ambassador for Christ absolutely serious. And this, again, is why the message of the gospel is so important. And this is why. This is where we close tonight. Are you ready? What we believe determines how we behave. What we believe will change the way we behave. Now watch this. If it doesn't change the way we behave, we either don't understand what we believe, or we don't truly believe it. Now this is important in the application of us who have been made right with God, the old passed away, Dealing with sin. Because many of you say, Dave, this is all good, but guess what? I literally still struggle with sin. And this is why preaching the gospel to yourself is important. This is why remembering the end of the gospel that we will be made perfect and whole and right. We will have glorified bodies of Christ forever. 
But it should cause us, when we talk about ministry, the message of ministry, the motive for ministry, now the life of ministry, to say, wait a second, okay, I'm living in this sin. But this is what I believe the Bible says about this sin. So either I don't really understand what the Bible says about this sin, or I simply don't believe it. Let me explain. This is, by the way, all throughout Paul's writings. Look at, remember, we talked about this last year. Ephesians 3, the first three chapters, was all about who you are in Christ. The last three were, now that, now that you know who you are in Christ, this is how you ought to live. This is the application. It's not optional, the life of ministry. So when we see a lack of obedience in areas of our life, what we need to do, I'll say this again, when you look at your life and you see areas that are living in disobedience, here's what you need to do. You need to go back to the gospel. And you need to see if there's something about where you're struggling that you don't understand. Or if you do understand it, you need to ask yourself why you are living like you don't actually believe it. For example, financial disappointment. I'm talking about being discouraged with where you're at, wishing that you had more money, comparing yourselves to others and other lifestyles. This comes down to asking yourself where your treasure is. This comes down to asking yourself, do you really believe that that is where your treasure is? And that comes down to then asking, are you willing to put godly disciplines into practice that will strengthen you and encourage you? But to sulk and to be greedy and to covet is to not believe the truth of God's word. Because if you know that the Bible says you have a better possession and an abiding one, if you are struggling and you're coveting and you're greedy and you want more, and you go, where's the gospel here? You say, okay, the better possession and abiding one. The law of the Lord revives the soul more to be desired than gold, even fine gold. My best life comes later. I'm living in jars of clay. I know all those things. And then I go back to my life and I'm still sulking and coveting and greedy. My problem isn't understanding. My problem is believing those things. Because if I did believe those things, my thoughts about my finances would be different. My godly disciplines would be different. It's the same issue when it comes to lying, or arrogance, or sexual sin, or pride. We're giving into lies, and then if we see the truth, then we don't put into practice godly disciplines, a life of ministry, what it comes down to is we're not believing what the Bible says about these areas. And it's ultimately about what makes us happy. We don't believe that the gospel, what it says about Christ, gives us more joy. The message of ministry and the motives of ministry make the life of ministry happen. If you know the, if you know the message and you have the right motives, what should happen is your life should be a life full of ministry. So when we have an issue with obedience... Go back to the message. And if you know the message, go back to the motive. Because somewhere we have either forgotten the message, or we don't know the message, or our motive is all jacked up and we're not believing the message. And why would we preach a message that we don't believe? So what does this mean for us today? What does this mean for our goal for the semester? We are about to embark in one month on a journey of cultivating a biblical worldview. We've been trying to prepare you with these lessons specifically for this. This means that we are going to be challenging you to proclaim the gospel and live in such a way that is based on the foundation of Scripture in every area of your life. Next week, we're going to talk about the biggest enemy of our faith, our affections. And two weeks from tonight, we're closing up the semester asking the question, is the Bible really the foundation for all things? Is it really sufficient for all things? Aren't there some things that we can decide and do outside of the Bible? Aren't there some areas that's unclear and we're going to deal with, is the Bible sufficient for all things? And then we're going to come and say, obviously, yes, it's inconsistent to say otherwise. The Bible does not preach that something can be decided or taken apart from the Bible. We'll talk about that in two weeks. So based on this, we now begin the new year. 
with race and homosexuality and adultery and abortion and patriotism and money and medicine. And we get into the nitty gritty of the affairs of culture today. And by the way, there are wars going on in these things in culture today, and it's a bloodbath. And so us preaching the truth of the gospel will not be popular in the world. But even more so, what we're probably going to find is that many of the truths we'll talk about from the Bible will clash with our own desires and our own beliefs. So in these moments... We must say, do I not understand the message of the gospel or is my motive jacked up? We must remind ourselves of the gospel, the ministry life that God has called to us and the motive for this ministry life. Otherwise, we will not persevere. What will happen is you will come week two or week three when we talk about money or we talk about something, we talk about relationships or we talk about dating or we talk about sex or we talk about whatever and you're going to go, yep, not feeling that. (sighs) Chalking up the deuces. Or you'll go home and you'll simply decide because you don't want to give up a specific part of your life, it's just easier for you to not proclaim the gospel. Because if you realize now if you're going to proclaim the gospel, you've got to be consistent with a biblical worldview across the board. Or you'll simply not obey. So what I want to do is I want to encourage you to begin to pray daily. Thanking God for the gospel. Study the gospel. Know the gospel. Preach it to yourself daily. But then pray that God would correct and purify your motives. That God would cause you to walk in obedience in your life of ministry. That he would cause you to be obedient. Repentance, guys. We're talking about areas of disobedience. Repentance is changing the way we think about sin. Do you you see what we talked about? The reason we live in disobedience, remember? This This is amazing. The reason we live in disobedience is because we don't either understand what the gospel says about it or we don't believe it. So we we need to renew our thinking about what we understand or we need to renew our thinking about what we delight in. That's repentance. And this causes us to change. And we've said that to cause the change apart from repentance in your mind and changing the way you're thinking is impure motive for ministry. And now you're seeking the approval of man. And that's not a life of ministry. So 2 Corinthians 5 is gold for us. It should cause us to really consider and look into our hearts and ask that God will continue to do what only He can do. Renew our minds. Change the way we think. We're going to close this evening again, not with small groups, but with a song that goes specifically with what we've been discussing tonight. So I want to close with a song of praise and prayer. And while we prepare to sing that song, why don't you bow your heads again and why don't you respond in your own heart to the message this evening, the Word of God.